Well, welcome everybody to the fourth and final installment of this series we've called No Regrets, where we are looking at uh, one of the most important emotions, regret, uh, that we will face and how it affects us, uh, where we get frustrated over an action or inaction and how it can kind of create quicksand or jet fuel. Uh, we have started each week with this, mem- with this reminder, and that is out-of-control emotions will never produce God-honoring results in my life. They will produce results, they just won't be God-honoring. And on top of that, that most overlooked, misunderstood, underestimated emotion that we kind of push to the side or kind of uh, sweep under the rug when we say, I just am going to live with no regrets, this whole idea of regret is an important overlooked emotion. And whether you have little regrets we've said or big regrets, whether we have obvious blatant regrets, whether we've tried to kind of smooth over, kind of cover up, the truth is this series has not been designed to say, hey, how do we live with no regret? But really, how do we lean into the transformative power of Jesus when we do feel like, oh, I shoulda, coulda, woulda. Over the last three weeks, we talked about foundation regrets that says, oh, if only I'd done the work, if only I'd put in that foundation and really kind of gone after that. Spiritually, that looks like not just hearing the word, but doing the word. Many Christians are um, uh, over-knowledgeable and under-obedient. And what would it look like if we really put that work in and trust Jesus to do his work through us? Uh, Week two, we talked about Samson and the moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing, and yet how Jesus meets us in the middle of our frustration or in the middle of our shoulda, coulda, wouldas and gives us that next chance. Last week, I unpacked connection regrets, and we talked about, you know, if only I'd reached out and the kind of the power that unresolved conflict has on us and how we should be in the process of being peacemakers. How do we really make that peace by reaching out and reconciling and whether we reconcile or not, as we talked about last week, forgive anyway. Regardless of reconciliation or restoration, it's always healthy for you to forgive. Today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to unpack this fourth piece of kind of the common regrets of people, and that is boldness regrets. Everybody, all our locations say boldness regrets. Very good. Very good. Like, I've got some boldness regrets where I wish I would have, you know, gone the extra mile or taken that risk. That's really what it's about. If only I'd taken the chance. If only I would have made the phone call. If only I would have invested early. If only I would have said no more on that thing. If, if only I would have drawn the line and said, I'm not going any further than this. Or if only I would have erased the line and said, I'm moving forward. If, if I just could have been a little bit more bold. I want to take you to a story. I've shared this story before. It's one of my favorite because it's in kind of the genre of some of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. And First and Second Samuel, the whole developing of a nation and the first monarchy of Saul and David and Solomon. And 
instead of Israel being a national icon, they're really just a kind of a, a ragamuffin group of guerrilla mercenaries, and they're trying to carve out existence in the middle of a promised land that's got all kinds of uh, different enemies around them, in particular the Philistines, which were their number one adversary. Uh, they had many, but the Philistines were like a top of the list enemy of Israel. And we come before David's monarchy into Saul and Saul's son, Jonathan, who happened to be the very best friend of King David. And we're going to unpack a story about boldness in the life of this prince, Jonathan, and see if we can find some cues for our own boldness in our life. We're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and here's where we pick up the story. Saul, the king, he had chosen 3,000 men from Israel, 3,000 men, about 10% of the population of the broadcast city of Lufkin. He had 2,000 that were with him and 1,000 that were with Jonathan. Now, this isn't the only size of the army. The scripture goes on to say, the rest of the men he sent back to their homes. He had thousands Thousands of men in the military, but for some reason, Saul felt like he was in a position where 2,000 with him and 1,000 with his son was enough. Little did he know that he was up against a bigger battle than he realized, because the very next scripture says, the Philistines assembled just like the Israelites, and they were going to fight Israel. But when the Philistines all gathered together, they had 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, uh, meaning two guys per chariot. They had soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So what we have is a little bit of a prequel to the old David and Goliath situation. As a matter of fact, I grew up playing Nintendo. I don't know if anybody remembers the old Nintendo, and, uh, but, but we, we had one of my favorite uh, games in the Nintendo that you had to kind of blow it out and put it in there and kind of da, 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 and then push the power button was Mike Tyson's punch out and Little Mac was the underdog and you had to grow and fight all these different guys to finally get to Mike Tyson was the final bout of Mike Tyson's punch out. And so to help you understand in today's terms, Philistines versus the Israelites, uh, that's the Philistines, that's Saul's army and trust me, it gets worse. <laughs> so the scripture goes on to say, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical, like what in the world, <laughs> we have underestimated the enemy, and that their army was hard pressed, those 3,000 didn't go into battle. They actually, they hid in caves and thickets. They hid among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns, like everywhere. They're down below. They're covered up with leaves. They're in the wells of the neighbor's house. Saul, though, remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Quaking, like they were trembling with fear. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three different detachments. They're going to surround them. They've got different responsibilities, and it's looking more and more bleak as the day goes on. 
not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Now, why is this important? Well, because uh, the Philistines had said, if, if they find blacksmiths, they're going to be able to make swords. Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. And so the, the Philistines were brilliant in that they went and they captured and they killed all the sword makers. It's kind of hard to fight if you got nobody to make swords. And so on the day of the battle, not a soldier, not only are they uh, outmanned, out-charioted, they're also outgunned. Not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. This is why they were hiding. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Okay, so we're not even really into the story yet, and what we're seeing is a situation where they're outnumbered, they're under-resourced, they're overwhelmed, they're uncertain, and they are very Afraid. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation that one or more or all of these components that you could relate to those, where you feel outnumbered on doing the right thing when everybody else around you is saying, ah, give a little, where you feel like I go forward, I just don't have the resources. I, 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 I'd go and I'd, I'd do what I need to do. I just don't have the finances or I don't have the courage or I don't have the, the time or I don't have the, the, the training. And uh, many times parents <laughs> can feel outnumbered and under-resourced, overwhelmed with today's culture, uncertain about how to go about this and that and the other. And many of us can be, we may not even communicate it this way, but we can live very afraid. In other words, we get stuck and we don't get out and take the chance. Now, if I'm Israel, if I'm Saul, if I'm Jonathan, there are several different reasons on the pro and con list. There are several different things that I have highlighted that would signal I should probably go ahead and live to fight another day. Uh, There's enough going on. There's enough overwhelmed and under-resourced and outnumbered that I should probably just say, (laughs) let's retreat. Let's wave the white flag. Let's step back into, you know, the capital city and we'll kind of reconvene. We'll regroup and we'll, we'll fight the Philistines another day. Would you write this down? It's there in your notes. There will always be a good reason not to step out in faith. There's always a good reason not to step out and trust in what you can't see and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and and trust that path that he carves out for you. There's always a good reason. I mean, for Adam and Eve, there was a good reason to kind of not step out in faith and, and not eat of the fruit because The Bible says that they saw it was pleasing to the eye. It was pleasing, good for food, good for gaining wisdom. So there was was a reason to not trust God and just kind of step out in their own understanding. The apostle who who was just Simon Peter at the time, but who became later the kind of the, the, the preacher who birthed the New Testament church in the book of Acts, Peter has fished all night and not caught anything And yet Jesus says, launch out into the deep. There's 
There's plenty of reasons to not launch out into the deep. They've been in the deep all day, all night. They haven't caught anything. Why go out now? There's always a good reason. And one of the best reasons that we like to use at our disposal to not step out in faith is conventional wisdom. Sometimes conventional wisdom will be the thing that keeps you from experiencing the God thing. Conventional wisdom says, we can't feed 5,000 people with a couple fish and some bread. Conventional wisdom says, go to Sam's Club. Conventional wisdom says, you've been burned before. Hold the grudge. Conventional wisdom says, as long as you feel happy, you're, you, you can just kind of leave who you want to leave, do what you want to do. C conventional wisdom just assumes that you're going to be able to go and kind of make things happen. But my question for us today, my question for us today is, what would it look like if we pushed pause on conventional wisdom because many times it will keep us from a miracle. And what does it look like to live with less certainty and more boldness all at the same time? Because here's the, here's the messiness of your Christian life and mine. It doesn't get sanitized to where it's all boldness and no you know, uncertainty. There'll always be a level of... Whew, do we? Should we? Uh, could we? There's always going to be a level of uncertainty. And what does it look like when you don't have all the certainty you wish you had? And as you engage boldness, working those things at the same time, what does that look like? Well, this story, as it progresses, gives us some principles on how to live with less certainty and more boldness. Number one, if you're taking notes, here's what it looks like. It looks like engaging urgency. Uh, do you know that um, success will feed your pride? When you become successful at something and things kind of look like you've got all your ducks in a row financially, emotionally, relationally, you name it, spiritually, and, and success can feed your pride. And then what happens is your pride can kind of... Um, kill your urgency because if you feel like you got it all figured out you lose this this intensity you, you lose this sensitivity to being willing to step out when when you feel the spirit prompting you to take that risk and take that chance and what we see here is with Jonathan and his armor bearer that even though they were in uncertain overwhelmed under-resourced very scary times they engaged a sense of urgency. The scripture goes on in chapter 14, verse one. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, in this whole situation, he said to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Let's leave our comfort zone. We've got to like go over. We're going to put ourselves in a position to see if God might do something in the middle of this unreal situation. Write it down. This is faith with feet. Faith isn't meant to be static. Faith isn't meant to be just kind of lived undercover, incognito. Faith requires feet. Faith without works 
is dead. It's not what you could ever do that would get you security with God, but as you have gained security with God, have his righteousness over your life, then that faith, believing in what you can't see, uh, that, that whole substance of the things hoped for, as you have faith, your faith should move your feet forward. I'm inviting you to re-engage a sense of urgency, dad, that you are, whether you see yourself or not as this, you are the spiritual leader of your home. I mean, whether you have been serving Jesus for a long time or maybe you've never really taken that step of surrendering to God, you, by being a father, are divinely called to be a spiritual leader. Now, whether you're leading well or not is to be determined. But embrace that calling, faith with feet. Engage a sense of urgency that I am a spiritual leader in my home. Believe that. God wants to give you the grace, but the urgency to move forward in that. Here's another thing that, that less certainty and more boldness all at the same time. Here's what it looks like. It looks like partnership. That you were never designed to go alone. It's part of the reason why God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit show us themselves in community. And as a matter of fact, the first thing that wasn't good on earth, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. If you really want to be bold, it's important to have, the, it's important to have partnership. But notice there's an important piece here about partnership. It looks like the right partnership. You can get partnered up with people and whoopsie, like ought not be partnered up with them. L look at the story. The, the Jonathan and his son, uh, the son of Saul said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outposts on the other side. So he's got a partner in his armor bearer, but look at the very next line. But he did not tell his father. He didn't tell his father because there was something Jonathan recognized in his father, and we see it in the next scripture. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Now, here's really what that's meaning. This was kind of a relaxing area. This was a, more of kind of a sabbatical time for Saul where he really isn't engaging like he should. Now with him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah who was wearing an ephod. Now let me unpack this for a second. If, if it looks like partnership, it makes sense that Jonathan would actually want to go to Saul because Saul is king. Saul has got 600 men. Saul has also got Ahijah who is wearing an ephod. Now what does that mean? Is that like a special military thing? No, that was a priestly gown. And the ephod was basically like a vest that had a large, almost like a kangaroo pouch in the front. And inside the pouch, there were two smooth stones called the umum and the thumum. Not Irma Thurman, Uma Thurman, Uma and the thumum. And here's basically what it was. It was, it was a little bit of like um, two dice. It, it, it was like... Uh, it was like a, a deck of cards, so to speak, but it was two 
smooth stones that when you put your hands into the pouch and you felt the stones, you couldn't tell the difference between them. If you were to pull them out, you would see that one stone was black and the other stone was white. And one would recognize, one would basically represent no, don't go. And the other one would represent yes, move forward. And so it was basically like old school magic eight ball. But, but, but it just, it is what it is that God would use this kind of system at the time for them to, if they didn't have a decision and they were at a deadlock, they would go to the priest. The priest would ask of God, God, should we go forward or should we stay? Should we stay or should we go now? And they would pull out one. They would mix the, the stones behind the scenes in the pouch. And if they pulled out white, yes, let's go forward. If they pulled out black, no, let's stay where we are. It was the way to get kind of the, uh, it was the, the ace card, so to speak, for clarity. Now, why do I say all that? Jonathan says, let's go over to the Philistines. You would think that if he's going to go to the Philistines, being way outnumbered, way overwhelmed, and way under-resourced, that he would go to the priest and ask them, should we do this? Okay, Should we make this happen? Should we get more men? But many times, if you're gonna live with less certainty and more boldness all at the same time, number three, it's not gonna look like more resources. I wonder how many people you're not willing to step out in faith and trust God because you're waiting for another cloud to spell it out. You're waiting for another resource. You're waiting till you get another answer. You're waiting until you get another scripture. You're waiting until you feel like you're prepared. And simply put, there's gonna be times where you're not gonna have the comfort zone of a, of a humum or a thumum. You're not gonna have the comfort zone of extra people, but you can have the right partnership. You can have the Holy Spirit. You may not have all the answers. You may not have a clarity, but you can still have the boldness. It doesn't ever really look like more resources. Oh, when we, when we feel financially secure, that's when we're going to have children. <laughs> when we become more mature, that's when we're gonna have kids. Trust me, you're never gonna be mature enough. Like you just kinda, kinda engage the journey. It doesn't look like more resources. It just simply looks like risk. It just looks like risk, a boldness risk. The scripture goes on that on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outposts was a cliff. So the pass that they're gonna go through, there's a cliff on one side and a cliff on the other. One was called Bozes and the other Sina. And one cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, and the other to the south towards Geba. There's like, I mean, if you're looking for names to, for your quintuplets, I got them right there. Hey, Bozes, Sina, Michmash, Geba. Like, like there you go. Well, quadruplets, I guess. We only have four there. But here's what's interesting about even the names of these cliffs. Look at this. Sina and Bozes. Bozes is a thorny cliff. And Cena isn't much better. It may not have thorns. It's just super stinking slippery. Like, it's going to be risk no matter what. Uh, that's what they're up against in this stepping out with less certainty and more boldness. Would you write it down? 
you're not going to be able to sanitize risk. You, 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 can't, you can't mitigate all your risk because you're also going to lose all your potential for your reward. So here's what I want you to ask yourself. What's my next risk? What is your next risk? Beyond, beyond like investing in that stock that you're kind of hoping yields that return. I'm talking about what's your next risk as a follower of Jesus? Can I tell you the next risk that every single one of us can take? We can dilute it all down. We can, we can basically distill it all down into one common theme. And here, I'm gonna give it to you. This is the risk that every single one of us need to continue to take. And if you haven't taken this step yet, what if today could be it? What if this moment today, as we're nearing getting 90 days, like we're, we're gonna be 90 days into this year already. And I wonder if the last 60 days you've struggled with this. This, if you do this one thing, if you embrace this next risk, I promise you, it won't be easy, but it will always be worth it. It is always, listen to me, Groves, you embrace this next risk. It's always worth it. Nagadochus, Iglesia, listen to me, guys, in the prisons. This is the next risk we always have to take. It's always available. Now, I've teased it up. So what is this risk? Trust God first in everything. So many times, we just want to trust our comfort zone. We just want to trust our track record. We just want to trust our denominational preferences. We just want to trust our own intellect. We just want to trust our own strength. And so we go to the pieces that is our life. And, and when it comes to our financial situations, relational, physical, career, or even spiritual, the question is, are you trusting God first in every single one of these? But let me give you a very important kind of adjustment to this very list. Just spiritual isn't one of them. All of this is spiritual. All of these things. It's not like you have one component of trusting him spiritually. You have to trust him spiritually for all of these things. Wait, listen, do you know why we receive an offering on Sundays? Why you can give to TimberCreekChurch.com or you can give in, in a giving box through an envelope or cash or check or however you choose to do that. Well, I know why it is. It's so you can pay the bills and, and pay the staff and move things forward. No, 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 no. We get to do those things as you give. But the reason we give is it reminds us that God is first in everything. He is the number one source, not our money, not our job, not our boss, not our abilities. We give because it is reminding, as for me and my house, the number one provider is not daddy. The number one provider is not mama. The number one provider is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And we give because it aligns us with putting the risk in the right place, putting the trust in the right person. When you trust God first with your finances, it unlocks so many other pieces of your life. 
And so we invite you to give unashamedly. I invite you to give. I mean, it, it, it doesn't bother me to ask you, be a giver. Oh, I knew the church was just after my money. No, I'm after God's blessings for your life. Why wouldn't you be? Why wouldn't you be after God's blessing for your life? If, if God had a bucket of blessings available, he said, I'm going to give you 90% more blessings. Will you give me 10% of what you have, and I'm going to pour out, and I'm going to bless the rest of the 90%? If you could actually see it, you'd do it. Well, guess what? That's what faith is. Faith is stepping out, risking, putting him first, even in your finances, when you can't quite see it, but that's the kind of God we serve. Here's, here's the truth. God won't ask you to risk what you don't have. He, he's not asking you to give what you don't have. He's not asking you to risk what you don't have. As you, using the idea of offering and tithe, as you receive income, He's not asking you to give before you've received it. He's saying, as you receive it, the first portion is holy. The first portion is set apart. The first portion proves that there's no other God before me, including your money. And so, put me first. And, and he's not going to ask you to risk what you don't have, but he may ask you to risk what you don't want to release. Your will, your way, your decisions, your comfort, he has every right to be God and challenge you in things that will engage a sense of urgency and invite you to step out in a calculated risk. But if you'll put him first, it's the best risk you could ever take. The scripture goes on. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Isn't it kind of funny how like circumcision comes up all through? It's like, oh, love one another, love one another, do this, do that. Circumcision, this, 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 that. Uh, four score and seven years ago, circumcision. I don't know if it was in the Gettysburg Address, but, but circumcision is like all throughout Scripture. Why is this? Because it was a physical response to a holy covenant. And so Jonathan says this almost like uh, this, this uh, kind of backhanded insult to the Philistines as they're uncircumcised because they weren't under covenant with God. They did not have the protection of the one true God. They were not serving the one true God. And it's a reminder that this physical expression is just saying they're not under covenant. We're under covenant. We have, an, we have a covenant with God of the cosmos. He's got us here. And he says, let's go to the outpost. Let's not retreat. Let's not stay hidden in the shed in the backyard. Let's go to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. And the very next scripture is one of the craziest scriptures you'll read. The very next scripture, the very next statement of Jonathan is one of the craziest scriptures you'll read. And here's how it reads. Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> like maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. We're going to put ourselves out there and maybe just maybe, we don't know, or this may be our last day. We may die today, armor bearer. But nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Can I just encourage you today? Nothing hinders the Lord. But if there is one thing that might hinder the Lord in your life would be your perspective of him. 
where, where you just assume that he's not interested, where you assume that he doesn't want to just scoop in. And, and like, even if you haven't seen him always work the way you wished he would, Jonathan certainly understood this. I don't know. Let's see. Perhaps I know this. Whether he moves or not, he can save us. Whether he does it or not, he is capable. Do all that you have in mind, as armor bearers said. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. Now, if I'm the armor bearer, I'm going, did you just say perhaps? Like, did, did you just say, I don't know, let's see. I... But there was something that was in the armor bearer that just trusted his prince. I come back to the question, what does it look like to live with less certainty and more boldness all at the same time, number four, it looks like trust in the capacity of a limitless God. We are so limited. And that's why this sermon isn't meant to be a financial sermon, but because it's such a big deal in our lives these days and every day, we have limited resources and so what we do is we don't trust that God could do more with our what's left over if we put him first and gave first to him the 10% or the tithe. We, 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 don't, we don't trust in his unlimited power. We would rather trust in our very limited resource. But God is inviting you to remind yourself of his capacity, his bigness. And no matter where you are, financially, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, maritally, in a wound, in the next decision, from, from the boardroom to the bedroom to the living room to the college dorm room, God has a way of turning a maybe into a miracle. Maybe if I put God first, he might just provide, and I want to tell you, he's been so faithful in my life and in Janet's life. He's been so faithful in the 95 plus years of this church's life that when we had a little bit, he has done so much with that little bit that he's turned maybes into miracles. So Jonathan says, come on, we're going to cross over toward him and we're going, here's our strategy. We're going to let the enemy see us. What? Now, here's his kind of, here's his wager. He says, okay, armor bearer. I was going to say under armor. Okay, under armor bearer. If they say to us, wait there, the Philistines say, wait there until we come to, come to you. Well, then we'll stay where we are, and we're not going to go up to them. But, now here's his, his wager with the armor bearer. But, if they say, hey, why don't you come up to us? We're going to climb up. Remember, they're going to climb up either the thorny side or the slippery side. We're going to climb up because that will be our sign. If they say, come up to us, that'll be our sign. The Lord has given them into our hands. What? That's the sign? You would think if they all like fell over dead or they fell over worshiping God or they just all began to stutter like, what do we do? And they're shaking in their boots that that would be the sign. But they're saying, come on up here so we can cut your throats. Like that's the sign the Lord's going to deliver them. So what do they do? Both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost and it gets even crazier. Look, said the Philistines. <laughs> the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in, these little bugs. 
these little rodents, these little waste of space people. So the men of the outpost, they shouted, here's the sign, they shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, will come up to us and will teach you a lesson. And I wonder as they're coming out of their outpost, their little hiding place, that, that they say, come up to us. And Jonathan looks over to the armor bearer and says, did you hear what they said? And if I'm the armor bearer, I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I, it was a, I, I don't think, I don't, I, I don't understand what they said. Like, I know what they said, but I don't know if I want to do what they said to come up to us. Do you hear what they said? Whoa. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, baby, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. Talk about a position that usually isn't good for fighting an enemy. He's completely exposed, completely vulnerable with his armor bearer right behind him. If you're going to live with less certainty but more boldness all at the same time, do you know what you and I have to embrace? It's gonna look like vulnerability. It's gonna look like a vulnerability to trust God with everything first. But in that moment, in that vulnerability, in that risk, unsanitized, risk-taking moment where all the odds were stacked against them, in that first attack, <laughs> Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. And as they were fighting, the panic struck the whole army and those in the camp and in the field and those in the outpost and those three raiding parties, the ground began to shake and it was a panic sent by God. Their act of simple faith unlocked a divine, supernatural moment where the, where the presence of God shook the ground and provided a miracle and a victory that day. Can I ask you to ask yourself a question this morning? Here it is. What if the God I'm waiting on is waiting on me? You've been praying for God to shake the ground. You've been praying for the breakthrough. You've been praying that God would show up in a mighty way. But what if, what if he's just been waiting on you to put him first? To say, I'm going to trust you no matter what. Because it wasn't until the feet of Jonathan and the armor bearer began to move that God began to shake the ground. And God showed up and there was a supernatural provision and a supernatural victory in the middle of what could have been just another day of retreat and another day for King Saul to sit back underneath the pomegranate shade, someone with real risk, someone with real boldness but uncertainty, stepped out and trusted the God of the cosmos. As we finish up today, uh, I like to consistently draw our attention back to these stories because Jesus 
on the day that he was resurrected, he shows up on the road to Emmaus with two men. And they are distraught and hopeless because the rabbi they were following, he had died. They didn't recognize that the person who shows up walking with them is Jesus, the rabbi, um, crucified, executed, buried, and then resurrected and now with them. But as Jesus began to walk with them, the Bible says that starting with Moses and the prophets, he began to unpack scripture, revealing himself through those scriptures. And what we see here is every story in the Bible points us to Jesus. And it points us to our everyday life. And so a question I like to ask when we're telling stories in the Bible is this, who are we in the story? Who are we in the story? Maybe you've been an enemy to God. You've never invited a bowed knee to his kingdom, his rule, his hand on your shoulder. You, you have not given up your sword of your own security into his hands where you've raised a white flag and said, instead of my kingdom come and my will be done, I want to, I want to honor and surrender and live in your kingdom, God. You, you could be the enemy today. You may not even realize it. The good news is God's not out to get you. He's invited you to step over the line and into his kingdom. Maybe you might not be an enemy of God, but you, you may be Saul and you've gotten comfortable. You've, you've retreated away from what God has called you to do, how he's called you to live, the risk he's invited you into. And Instead of stepping out in that kind of vulnerable risk, maybe you're playing it safe. <laughs> maybe, maybe like you're being challenged today to be Jonathan. Jonathan to say, come on, let's go. Let's make it happen, Captain. Let's, let's get out there. And, let's, and the spirit of Jonathan, like God's calling you to take that next mountain, whether it be slippery or thorny. If God be for me, who can be against me? And I want to say to you that you aren't Jonathan. <laughs> You're not Jonathan. The Bible stories aren't there to put us in David's shoes, to put us in Jonathan's shoes, to put us as the hero of the story because the truth is we ain't the hero of the story. The truth is Jesus is Jonathan in this story. That against all odds Jesus would show himself to the world and instead of having an incredible victory a blatant victory he would come onto the stage of human history and he would go through the death. He would go through the suffering. He would expose himself in order for you to be saved. He would expose himself to the plan of God and to the excitement of the enemy, thinking that the enemy would have won, but it was God's plan all along for Jesus to climb a thorny, slippery hill of Golgotha to pay it all for you and for me. So who are we? Who could we be in this story? God doesn't invite you to be the ultimate warrior because that's Jesus. But he does invite you 
to say these words to Jesus even today. Jesus, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, Jesus. I am with you, heart and soul. And if you and I will take a position of being protected by the prince, the king of kings, even. And we'll simply do as you want to do, God. Do as you want to do, Jesus. I'm with you, heart and soul, I want to tell you. No matter the size of the risk, no matter the amount of your limited capacity, you can't lose. If God is for us, nobody's against you. Can I pray with you today? All heads bowed, all eyes closed across campuses. The first prayer would be for those of you that you have been fighting for your own kingdom, your own throne. And today, maybe it's time. Could this be the intersection of opportunity for you to say, no more, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus. In your own words, you would simply say, Jesus, I, my own kingdom is made up of my own stuff, my own sin, my own wants, my own control, and I surrender to you today. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you for taking my place, dying on a cross for me. I can't save myself. That's why I need a savior. And maybe for the first time or a fresh time, you would say, Jesus, I confess my sin to you. And I know you are faithful and just to forgive me of that, to cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness and to cover me with your rightness. Thank you, Jesus. And for everybody else in the room that maybe you're experiencing a risk, that you are experiencing an overwhelm, an under-resourced, a very afraid, a limitedness, whatever it might be, financially, relationally, spiritually, emotionally. But you're choosing today, I'm gonna step out. I'm gonna trust God first. Can you just re-up on that commitment today? I wanna do the same. God, we're stepping out in faith today to trust you first. God, for some, that would be in their finances. May they not leave this room without either getting online or starting somehow, somewhere, physically, even with their giving, that they would trust you first. Put your kingdom first. Maybe beyond finances, it's relational, and they have to forgive. They've got to take the first step of reconciliation, but it's a risky thing, and it's a slippery, thorny climb, but God, they're not alone in the climb. They're not alone in the journey. May they lean not on their capacity, but on your limitless capacity. God, they're stepping out and trusting you emotionally with that hurt, with that wound, with that fear. May we know that if you are for us, who can be against us? And you will walk before us and shake the ground of the enemy. And the enemy flees as you walk in front of us and behind us and around us. We thank you, Lord, that you never have left the righteous forsaken. <laughs> You've never left us begging. We're, we're in your family. So do what only you can do. We want to be with you, Jesus, heart and soul.
today. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the mighty warrior. And everybody said, amen.